Hi, it's Emma. Jack FM as a station doesn't usually do serious, but this week it did, and quite right too. We as a station went offline on social media on the 2nd of June to reflect on what actions we need to take collectively in order to support our black communities in response to the death of a black man in America. George Floyd was killed when a white policeman knelt on his neck in Minneapolis. It was filmed and the video, which circulated online, caused widespread outrage, including in Oxfordshire. In response, this week, locals stood in solidarity with demonstrators in the US. They hosted a social distancing protest in Oxford South Park during the coronavirus pandemic. Hundreds of people turned up for it and brought banners with them. Oxford Stand Up to Racism urged residents to take the knee on their doorsteps too as a message of anger about racial violence, a message which was also seen across the UK. Ian McKendrick from the local anti-racism group says George Floyd's death resonates here and they're also demanding an investigation into why more people from BAME communities are dying from COVID-19. There's a whole climate of uh, rising racism and rising racist attacks that we've been trying to respond to for many years now. And, you know, this has sort of brought things to it's brought it all to the front again. We're witnessing a situation where, you know, essential workers who effectively have been demonised by the new immigration law saying they're low-skilled workers. These are people who are actually essential to the running of our society that shouldn't be discriminated against and paid such awful wages. And we're seeing in the COVID crisis that uh, black and minority ethnic groups are paying a disproportionate price. And, uh, you know, we want to see action on that as well. So it's brought a whole host of, you know, of aspects of racism into focus. And, you know, we want to, we don't want the focus moving off that. We feel that, you know, this has gone on for far too long already. And, um, you know, th- these issues are, are well known and need to be addressed. That was Ian McKendrick from Oxford Stand Up to Racism speaking to Jack FM following the death of George Floyd in America. In other news this week, some primary schools in Oxfordshire have reopened. Safety measures in place include one-way systems, limited class sizes and individual desks. But it's not just inside our schools that are changing as a result of the pandemic, as the school run could soon look a little different in Oxfordshire too. The County Council's looking at changing how roadside drop-offs and pickups work, saying it wants to offer families extra protection when it comes to social distancing outside schools. Here's our reporter, Joe, chatting to Councillor Liam Walker about what they've got in mind. Pick-up and drop-off at schools is always a problem area for many years without the, the added effect of COVID. Uh, so really, this is something we're continuing to develop plans with in some areas Uh, We're looking at what we're calling uh, a quiet streets initiative where you can look at putting a a temporary road closure in place uh, outside of primary school. Now, obviously, this is not, uh, you know, this can't be implemented at every primary school. It really does depend on the location and uh, parents and the school support. Uh, We're also looking at school transport. This is now the next stage, looking at uh, secondary schools going back as well, the year 10 and 12 pupils. Uh, So we've got to look at school transport because obviously you can't now get uh, 40, 50 kids on a bus. So we're having to do some work with our transport providers there. So this is a a developing plan sort of week by week as uh, the government release uh, and make announcements on when schools are going back. But the support so far has been really positive. 
uh, and I'd like to thank you know all the, all the schools that have stayed open for the key workers and now uh, all the parents that are letting their kids go back to school because it's really important we start to get back to some sort of normality for uh, both secondary and primary schools across Oxfordshire. Do you think if it does come to in some schools having to move those kind of pick-up points or like you say maybe close roads completely do you think parents will generally be supportive of that? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the plan is uh, mainly around secondary school, so uh, for particularly rural areas, uh, obviously the school pickups, the buses will arrive at villages and often there's only a few pickup points. So we're having to review that because obviously we don't want clusters of uh, 20, 30 kids gathering in one particular place. So our team are uh, monitoring that and looking at different areas where buses can stop. Uh, obviously, as I said, we are reviewing how many kids we can get on the bus. We might have to look at putting on extra transport uh, to be able to get kids to school. So it's uh, you know equally very challenging, but uh, working closely with schools. Uh, and yes, I really hope that the parents get behind this. You know, we're doing this to protect the health and safety of all the kids, uh, the parents and, and the teaching staff, which is very important. Do you think some of the changes that you make will become the sort of new normal? I, I know some might be temporary, but actually, could you see that some of those ideas would be a permanent thing? Yeah, I think particularly around um, closing off streets around school pickups. I think that's something I, I would like to see the council focus on. It's something that, um, you know, colleagues across Oxford have mentioned, but it really does depend on the location of the school. Uh, you know, I think about primary schools in my own division, uh, and it wouldn't always be appropriate because they're on sort of busy roads, busy bus routes that would be very complicated to implement. But I think that is certainly something we can look at uh, in terms of, you know, additional bus stops for kids. Then you've got the, the sort of added time that takes. I think that measure would probably go back to, to how it is because we don't really have problems with that. But I think certainly around schools, we're seeing, you know, anything from COVID has really uh, highlighted the need to, uh, you know, reduce emissions from cars and, and get more active travel. So I think there's going to be some good positives from this. Uh, and as you say, some measures we can certainly keep in place for the future very small measures like this supporting the schools to hopefully support the kids to get back to school and also support the parents because ultimately they're the ones that are going to make the decision whether their kids go back to school. In Oxford, we're roughly around 50% of kids have gone back to school in this past week, which is really good. Uh, but obviously not all, all year groups have gone back yet. So I'm hoping with these soft steps, um, we will able to you know, improve the health and safety of the kids and give the confidence to the parents and the staff. Uh, that, you know, getting the kids back to school and, and making sure they're getting good education is so important. Sticking with the County Council, as the authority has been criticised for not going far enough in its proposals to promote walking and cycling as we ease out of lockdown. Oxfordshire has been allocated up to £3 million of emergency travel funding by the government. But Liz Sawyer from Oxfordshire Liverpool Streets told me she thinks the current proposals are vague and fears we could miss out. Grant Chaps' letter on the 27th of May was very clear that it's only um, actions such as point closes and ones that significantly change the status quo of roads to prioritise walking and cycling that are going to be eligible for this £3 million worth of funding. Um, It's very clear that um, if nothing is done in Oxford at least, once the lockdown finishes and people are trying to back into the city and go to work, um, there could be a Carmageddon, effectively, with everybody who had previously been using public transport to get into the town trying to use their cars instead. If that were to happen, there would be absolute gridlock throughout Oxford and businesses 
and work would grind to a halt. So we want that very much not to happen. The city and county councils are currently working on social distancing proposals um, before Mm. the shops reopen, and that does include putting in more bike parking spaces and and things like that. Have you looked at those measures? We've looked at everything that the county council has actually produced and published so far, and at the moment they only seem to be suggestions. There isn't actually any concrete information about precisely what they're going to be doing on which particular roads. What do you think can be done then to strengthen the proposals? The government is very clear, actually. Um, What has to be done, it's either got to be point closures, so where a road is too narrow... Um, to allow for social distancing and adequate space for people to walk and cycle safely. Um, Point closures is one thing, and segregated cycle lanes, so where people have got a wide cycle lane that's actually separated from the traffic, and not only just for a short section of their journey, but continuous as well. So, for instance, continuously from um, the Seacourt Park and Riders, for example, all the way down into town. And at the moment, there is an off-road path, but only for about half of the way. And people are going to be discouraged if, if after being able to cycle in relative safety half of their journey, they then have to make the rest squashed up next to ever-increasing traffic. Um, that's that's not going to encourage people to make to make that switch, and it's not going to encourage walkers either if they haven't got adequate space on a pavement and are squashed up next to uh, next to cars and next to each other as well. Oxfordshire County Councils reassured the group that the proposals for the first wave of government funding are in good shape and could unlock up to six hundred thousand pounds. So, plans are being put in place to help us social distance from the middle of June, but what will happen to the homeless people who've been housed in hotels and student rooms in Oxford since lockdown began? Local charity Aspire is working with landlords in the city to help people who are vulnerable find more permanent accommodation once they have to move out of those rooms. Joe from News caught up with Paul Reed, who heads up their homeless programme. Aspire have created a partnership with uh, Nuffield College in, in Oxford and we ha- are bringing online uh, some empty properties that they've had uh, that have been empty for some time. So they were used as a bed and breakfast and smaller units of accommodation. So we, we managed to negotiate with them to give us all of their empty properties that we can bring online towards and support the exit from the hotels in Oxford. So we should, we're a matter of about a week away, I think, from realising the first property, which will be a, uh, it should be around about a 15-bed opportunity for shared accommodation to support individuals coming out of the hotels. And that would be quite an intensive support package uh, provided to those individuals. It's not a forever home. It really is just a stepping stone to try and get them back into, you know, into their own uh, more long-term stable accommodation outside of the structures of like the homeless pathway and supported accommodation. Private landlords are losing the opportunity to house students at Oxford because the colleges are building more and more of their own accommodation blocks and their own uh, version of accommodation for their students. So in the PRS sector, there's going to be a lot more opportunities coming up in the next year or so. There are going to be open, doors that are opening for individuals that maybe not directly in the homeless pathway, but at risk of coming into it. So we're, we're reaching out, we're engaging with those private landlords at the minute and other church groups as well. So we've had some positive conversations with some church groups around some empty premises that they've got, which are accommodation-based. Do you think that there could be an increase in homelessness in the coming sort of weeks and months, obviously, with what's going on with people losing 
their jobs and losing their income. We're expecting to see um, a lot of people move further into poverty because of the lack of their income through their employment status. Um, We're hoping that our homeless prevention service across Oxfordshire, uh, we have a team of community navigators that work with people in their own accommodation to try and support them to maintain that accommodation. And one of the biggest referral uh, triggers is for people that need support to maximise their income. Uh, it's normally through uh, maximising the benefit system. So we're expecting to engage with a lot of people pre-homelessness to try and prevent that from happening in the first place. And hopefully we've got enough reach to have some meaningful impact in that particular area. Also this week, we've reported that a new saliva test for COVID-19, which is easier to use and non-invasive, could be available by the autumn and has the backing of Entrepreneurship Centre, the Oxford Foundry. Alex Shepherd, who's an alumni of Oxford's Wadham College and the CEO of My110, hopes it'll be part of the solution to the pandemic. Our mission is all about driving um, sort of decentralised testing uh, out into the community to really empower people around their health. Um, We believe that healthcare is a very reactive discipline by its very nature. And what we want to try and achieve is through um, the greater engagement with, you know, kind of testing solutions, more rapid on-the-spot testing in the community, that we can make healthcare more proactive um, and easier and cheaper to access. How does it actually work? What we're building at the moment is uh, an antigen test for COVID-19. And what that essentially means is it's something that looks a bit like a pregnancy test, um, but from just a bit of saliva um, going onto this test, it can then tell you within essentially a few minutes uh, whether you currently have um, the COVID virus or not um, with just a very simple um, kind of red line reaction. Um, So again, you know, for something that's very cheap, quite easy to understand, um, you can then know and have that information on whether, whether you have the virus and whether you should um, isolate or whether you're safe to go to work um, that day, which I think is really, really important. Uh, and then the second side is that um, to allow this to be used at home, we're building a software app so that you could take a picture of your test result and, and send it to your GP or to public health to assist with track and trace initiatives, but also to, to potentially be involved in uh, return to work type COVID recovery programs. How would this test differ to other ones? Testing typically is using molecular diagnostic technologies, um, which is essentially where you're looking for the viral RNA. And this is what's been happening with the government programs where you you take a swab uh, and then that's put through a machine that can then identify whether there's, um, you know, viral uh, RNA on that swab. And then, you know, a couple of 48 hours later, you're then able to tell someone, you know, whether they have the virus or not. And the big difference with us is... I suppose if we imagine that, uh, you know, the virus is a burglar and um, the uh, and say like a human cell is a house, what we've done in effect is we've designed a fake door that the virus thinks is, you know, the, the way into a cell. And that's kind of how we our test is designed. So it's almost tricking the virus and then creating this reaction. Um, and that's that's how our technology works. So it's, it's a lot faster and you get a result you know, on the spot, you know, rather than, say, having to wait for a result from the lab. We're currently, um, we've 
just gone through our first clinical validation where we essentially tried this out on, on uh, sort of patient samples and we're now moving into phase two, uh, which is actually designing the product itself. So actually, you know, creating uh, what, would, what would be our, our test that we could, um, we could offer. Uh, and then we're going to go for a more formal independent validation, um, hopefully in partnership with Oxford. Um, and that will then put us in a position where we can say that we might be ready for this to be adopted. It's our hope that all being well, um, this is something that could be adopted in the autumn of this year, um, given a lot of the you know really exciting kind of, um, sort of fast track development timescales that are in place for to bring you know really novel game changing innovation uh, that can hopefully benefit people's lives um, you know as we start to recover from from the COVID crisis. Alex Shepherd there speaking about a new saliva test for COVID nineteen called My One Ten. Meanwhile, a tool developed in Oxford to compare how governments around the world are tackling COVID-19 has now been expanded to include the number of tests each country is doing. The Oxford COVID-19 government response trackers analysing data from more than 160 countries to work out things like when they're ready to exit lockdown. I've been chatting to researcher Beatrix Kira. She says the database looks at 17 indicators. And that includes, for example, school closures, travel restrictions workplace closures, but now also includes economic responses and uh, public health uh, uh, responses. So, for example, uh, how what is the contact tracing policy in place, uh, what is the uh, testing policy in place uh, put by government. Uh, the goal is to have a systematic and robust cross-national set of indicators that can capture and compare government responses across different countries and across time as well. Why have you expanded it? So uh, we are always trying to, uh, because the government measures have evolved over time, we are always trying to improve and refine our indicators, uh, not only adding more indicators to have a better picture of the broad responses that are being put in place. Why is this tracker beneficial in the response to COVID-19? Well, we hope uh, that governments, policymakers, academics and different people can do a tracker is to understand and to compare how different governments around the world have been uh, reacting to the pandemic. And that is not only in terms of which policies they are putting in place, but also how fast they reacted. So because uh, our database captures uh, changes in in policies, since the 1st of January, we can uh, measure quite well when uh, each type of policy was put in place in uh, each part of the world. One of the aims of the tracker is to inform government to learn from each other. Beatrix Kira there from Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. The impact of lockdown on our mental health is making headlines, not just locally, but nationally, more and more. Now, Oxford, you mind... Now, Oxfordshire Mind, a mental health charity, has revealed it's experienced a huge rise in calls in March during the peak of the coronavirus, but says contact has since dropped off. CEO Dan Knoll spoke to Joe about some of the big issues people have been struggling with recently. There's a couple of different patterns going on. Firstly, there are people who wouldn't necessarily have experienced mental health issues before coming forward. You know, that is very understandable. If, you've, if you have lost your job or if you've been furloughed or if you've had your salary cut or if someone you know has had the coronavirus and been seriously ill or, 
you know, very sadly, if, if somebody has passed away that, you know, you know, it's perfectly understandable that those people are going to be feeling, you know, very different to how they might normally feel. So, that, you know, that's one of the rises in demand. And then the other are people who have, may have long term, you know, long standing mental health issues. You know, for some of those people being locked down, being self-isolated just adds another real significant challenge to what's already challenged people. For a lot of people, not, not everyone, but for a lot of people, reaching out for some help, gaining some advice, um, nipping the challenge in the bud can actually make a really, really big difference um, and potentially mean that that person can just say, OK, that was, that was something that happened to me. It was an episode and now I can move on with my life and I'm, I'm fine again. Some of that help can actually be quite short term, quite limited, but very, very effective. So if you're not feeling quite yourself, you know, give, give us a call or, or give your GP a call. That's a great idea. And initially, you mentioned contact sort of dropping in more recent weeks with you guys. Do you think obviously as the lockdown restrictions lift, we can go out and see more people and do more exercise? Do you think that is just people are kind of finding their own ways, I suppose, of coping before maybe needing to turn to your charity? Well, we're slightly worried about that that sort of feeling of people wanting to to cope on their own it, it you know obviously there's a lot of material available our website and lots of others are very rich sources of information about how you could look after yourself and manage your own mental health and your own sense of uh, of well-being but i think people suffering in silence and not reaching out for help our experience is actually that make that can make things worse if people aren't feeling great if they maybe look at our website do some, make some changes and it's not working, that's the point at which you need to reach out and ask for help because, you know, help is available. And as I said before, a lot of services are actually running lower, uh, at lower levels than they were before. So, you know, we know that um, calls to GPs, visits to accident emergency departments, these are all lower than they were pre-COVID. So, you know, if people want help, they, they can and should uh, get it. And I think it's really important that people do that. And just from that, Dan, for you to be able to do that, you are now asking for a bit of help yourselves, aren't you? Yes, that's right. So, you know, we we are busy at the moment. Um, uh, we are fully expecting that as society starts to, you know, lift the restrictions and more people are coming back to work, but also as the implications of the, uh, the pandemic start to work their way through our economy in particular, we know the demand for our services is going to increase. Um, we're a charity that relies on people fundraising and lots of the fundraising events that we typically take place in, things like, you know, Bike Oxford, Blenheim 7K, all of these sorts of things, they, they actually haven't taken place. You know, there's just literally not been the chance to do it. And there's some amazing stories. I mean, we've had people you know, doing walks in their garden and climbing Everest on their stairs and, you know, doing just a huge uh, range of activities. But nonetheless, the amount of money that we receive from fundraising this year is going to be less in, than in previous years. And so, yeah, anyone who's, um, who, who's out there who wants to get involved, please, please do uh, contact us if, you, if you're interested in doing some fundraising for Oxygen Mind, because at, at the moment, every pound makes a real difference. It's Volunteers Week, National Volunteers Week this week. So, you know, we're doing some events based around that. And I want to say thank you to everyone who volunteers. We have 70 active volunteers with Oxygen Mind, you know, doing stuff for us every single week. And we've got lots and lots of fundraisers um, as well. So, you know, this is a week for us to say thank you to everyone who's giving to us. So I just want to say thank you to all of our volunteers, our peer supporters and our fundraisers, because we wouldn't be half the organisation we are without them. 
You can donate online at oxfordyourmind.org.uk or if you're struggling with your mental health, make sure you give them a call on 01865 247 788. And finally, a really lovely story from Oxford University Hospitals this week. Staff at the John Radcliffe are now being looked after on their breaks by real-life cabin crew. A new project's been launched where airline staff, who aren't working right now, have volunteered to serve refreshments and chat to their guests in a mock first-class lounge. Joe from News caught up with Joe Phillips from OUH to find out what it's all about. So we've got a lovely flower wall, Um, we've got some outdoor space as well and we've got a number of aircrew who are uh, meeting and greeting our staff and providing them with um, free teas and coffees, chocolates, some goodie bags at the moment because we're working in collaboration with um, our our charity as well. So we've got some uh, care packages as well that we've given out to staff. And it's just an opportunity for them to just talk to the air crew, uh, share experiences and um, and just get a little bit of downtime to de-stress. Lovely. And would you say it's kind of even more important right now when everything is a little bit more hectic than normal? Um, Some staff may be spending a lot of time whilst they're working in PPE and just needing a bit of a break. Absolutely. And health and wellness is one of our top priorities, never more than now. Um, and, and, and it is really important that we do provide our staff with that, that opportunity just to get away from their walls and, and, and come into um, an area where they can just, yeah, just kind of decompress a little bit and, and um, relax with their, their colleagues and not be in their PPE. Um, but it's open to people um, who, you know, anyone working at the John Radcliffe. We've got one also um, opening next week at the Horton in Banbury as well. So, um, excuse the pun, we are piloting this offer um, across these two sites at the moment to see um, how, it, how it's received um, by our staff and, and, and how valuable they find it. And I know it's only just started but have you already had some feedback from some of the guys that have been coming in to use the lounge yeah so it launched last night and we had um, around 400 people visit which was absolutely amazing Um, and we've had some good tweets as well where people have found it really um, useful just to be able to come along and and de-stress relax um, talk to their their colleagues but in particular you know have that opportunity to talk to the air crew as well and, and share experiences um, and, and there was one of the leaders from the, the airline yesterday who, who was flying today to go and collect, collect some PPE, which is brilliant. So there, there was some good story sharing. You don't often, I suppose, think or realise that cabin crew, flight crew, actually, as well as obviously their sort of day-to-day jobs, they have had training, haven't they, to deal with stressful high-pressured environments. They have, yeah, and, and that's why it's such a great offer for us as well. So it's not just about them providing, you know, some, some refreshments um, and, and, you know, waiting on our staff in terms of a kind of VIP lounge. It very much is about them being trained in mental health first aid, in human factors. So they're used to working, um, you know, and, and talking to people um, from an emotional perspective as well, which is absolutely brilliant. And for us, in terms of our health and wellness offer, um, that emotional Emotional support is really important as well, just to give you know our staff time to, to have somebody neutral as well that they can you know just have a have a chat with. So having them trained in in those skills is really really beneficial to us. We've posted more about this story online, including some pictures of the cabin crew helping staff at the JR Hospital. Head to the news pages of our website to check it out. Plus, there's loads more stuff on there as well to keep you updated during the pandemic. That's all from me now. I'll be back very soon, hopefully when the weather's brightened up again.